Let's pray. Father, we bow in this moment before you to do, ask you to do the things that we are simply not able to do. Would you incline our hearts toward the scriptures today? We are inclined away without your help. Would you grant us the gift of faith to look upon your word with believing trust this morning? For faith itself, says Ephesians 2.8, is a gift of God. Father, would you help us to ache over the ways that we fall so far short of generous giving? It is one of the great modern tragedies that we live in the prosperity that we do and do not see the generosity that we would like. And I, I pray, Father, that you would help our church to swim against the tide. I pray that you would show us the great treasure of Jesus Christ in the gospel. I pray that you would help us today especially to see how you want to empower our giving. Lord, we need to know how. And I ask that you would do that. You would unlock something that we didn't see before through the means of the Holy Spirit helping us to see what's plain here in this text. So come and do these things, Lord. We thank you so much for the gift of preaching. We are grateful for these moments and ask that you would do mighty things among us as your word is preached in Jesus' great name and for his glory alone we ask it. Amen. Today we've come to our third and final sermon in our three-week series on financial stewardship. Some of us are thinking, woohoo, right? This series is entitled Grace-Fueled Giving, and every bit of this over the last three weeks have come from the words of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9, and that's where I'll invite you to turn right now in the Bible if you haven't already. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, and we're going to pick up our study in verse 6. 2 Corinthians 9, 6. If you wanted to use one of the red Bibles in the seats, the text begins on page 968 in the red Bibles. 968. So two weeks ago, we learned that the first step toward grace-fueled giving is to ponder the examples of those who model it. That's the very first thing the Apostle Paul does. He just takes the gaze of the church in Corinth and draws it away from them to the region of Macedonia and says, look, look at what's happening. And that's what we did two weeks ago. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 to 15. That's the first step. Second step in grace-fueled giving is to come to view financial stewardship as not so much of a duty, but as a delight. That's the way that we glorify God. We give out of delight, not out of compulsion. That was last week. This morning, we're going to wrap things up with one remaining step, third step, and you see it before you in your outlines. Third step toward grace-fueled giving is to act. We have to act. This is what faith is. Act on the conviction that God's supply to you will meet his demand of you. Third step toward grace-fueled giving is to act on the conviction that God's supply to you will meet God's demand of you. So more than anything else that what we're trying to do this morning is just to seek to answer the question, how? How does this actually happen? 
What are the means? How does grace-fueled giving actually work? You see, we've been tracing the argument of the Apostle Paul then for three Sundays in a row, from models to motives and now means, the means of grace-fueled giving. Let's begin with point one today. If you're a Christian, God expects you to give lavishly and lovingly to the advance of the gospel. If you are a Christian, God expects you to give lavishly and lovingly to the advance of the gospel. So you see in the wording of this point a concern with both the what of giving and the how of giving. For the matter of giving as well as the manner of giving. Content and intent are important to God when it comes to how we give. It should be lavish and it should be loving. Look with me as we read 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. If you are a Christian, God anticipates, he expects that you will give lavishly and lovingly to the advance of the gospel. We know that Paul is in summary mode here in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6, because he uses that wonderful phrase, the point is this. He's getting down to brass tacks here. What's the point of all this, Paul? He's going to cut to the chase. I mean, you don't even have to have been with us the past couple of weeks to benefit from what's going on today. Paul's going to sum it all up in verses 6 and 7. What's the point, Paul? He answers in verse 6. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. That's the bottom line. And no mistake this, that when he uses this agricultural metaphor, he is encouraging us to sow bountifully. It's not giving us the option to sow sparingly. He doesn't actually come out and command that they sow bountifully. He just leaves a principle, just floats it out there in front of him. And he says, if you want to reap bountifully, then you will sow bountifully. But you will search in vain for any direct command to give, really, in all of chapters 8 and 9. He's just setting out a principle that all farmers know to be true. All things being equal, those who sow sparingly will reap sparingly. Those who sow bountifully will reap bountifully. Now, I'm no farm boy. I am a child of suburbia. So as I thought about what Paul's getting at here, I had to ponder this picture and its relevance for us. But a couple things came to my attention as I studied. I mean, one, just as a farmer scatters seed, sows seed, we too, when we give of our resources, we are parting of something to great, of great value to us. I was looking on the web last night just for relative costs of seed, and I was learning about farmers in Vermont and how expensive different kinds of seed are. The seed itself is an investment, and it's something that you've invested in. As you cast it away from you, you are parting with it. It's something valuable. Another reality is that as you cast the seed away from you, the seed seems to disappear. The farmer casts the seed away, he tills it in the soil, and it's gone. He can't see it anymore. Just like our resources, we put them in the plate and we go, ha, ha, ha. Oh, there it goes. Right? 
you have, to, you have to trust that God is at work as we fling our resources away from us and they seem to disappear. Also, there's a waiting period, just like with giving too. Farmers, um, farmers would be fools if they gave up on their crops during the summertime. They've got to wait until harvest. I think about Wayne Huben and his trek back home every November as he helps out with the harvest. and That's deep into the fall, um, but that's the reality and that's how farming works. We, too, would be foolish to write off our financial investments in the local church before the time when we don't see the response we're looking for with our giving. So John Calvin has a wonderful reminder on this point for us as he writes, Let this doctrine be deeply rooted in our minds that whenever carnal reason keeps us back from financial giving through fear of loss, that we may immediately defend ourselves with this shield. But the Lord declares that we are sowing. Right? That's what we need to remind ourselves of. Okay, the Lord declares this is an investment. This is seed being sown. And just as verse 6 implies, we aren't simply to sow modestly. We are to sow bountifully, lavishly. And here's where we want to figure, don't we? Much easier just to have a percentage Why doesn't Paul at least do us the courtesy of a guideline for giving? He doesn't do that. He comes close in verse 7. He says, each one must give. And then it's like, okay, here it comes. Then he says, as he's decided in his heart to give. That's the amount that you ought to give financially if you were looking for a hard number. As you have decided in your heart to give. He doesn't even suggest a tithe to the people in Corinth, which would have been obvious given his background in Judaism. Why not? He doesn't even hint at it. Does he not hint at it because we don't need to be giving that extravagantly to the local church? No. No. The reason he doesn't suggest 10% as the Old Testament law required is because he is treating the church in Corinth as spiritual adults not spiritual children. The law, among other things, is our tutor. The King James called the law our schoolmaster, our guardian that leads us to Christ, Galatians 3.24. The law treated Israel as a child taking his first steps in the faith. To change the metaphor, the law commanded the Israelites to put on the training wheels of tithing. That's what we do for three-year-olds on their bicycles. We help them. We give them a guideline. But training wheels are for children, not for adults. Paul is looking eye-to-eye with the church in Corinth, and he is treating them as mature adults in Christ. A grown-up should be a more accomplished cycler than a three-year-old, far better, and a new covenant Christian should be a more accomplished giver than an old covenant Israelite. Far more accomplished. Think about it for a minute. If the tithe was the floor, not the ceiling of old covenant giving under Moses, what then are we saying about the power of the gospel when we don't even give a portion of that today? You know what the average American household gives to the local church? 2.5% of their income. That's one quarter of the absolute minimum requirement under the law of Moses. 
Randy Alcorn sums up the state of 21st century giving in the American church this way. He says, using 10% as a measure, the Israelites were four times more responsive to the law of Moses than the average American Christian is to the grace of Christ. That is a damning sentence. I want to read that again. Regarding financial generosity, the Israelites were four times more responsive to the law of Moses than the average American Christian is to the grace of Christ. Now, I don't know, as I've said for several weeks in a row now, where we all fall household to household here. I don't track the giving of anyone's household except of my own. But I hope this percentage bothers you. I hope it creates a kind of holy discontent in your life as you think about your current level of giving, whatever that may be. God expects you to give lavishly, so bountifully, he says. Now, that's mainly verse 6, and it has to do with the amount that we give, but the rest of verse 7 takes aim at the affections with which we give, probably as much or even more important. Verse 7, each one must give as he has decided in his heart. And while he's thinking about the heart, he says, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. This is the subjective state that is the flip side to the objective truth in Acts 20.35 where Paul quotes Jesus saying, it is more blessed to give than to receive. It's a happier arrangement to give than to receive. Do you believe that? Not all of us do. If you've ever put an offering into the plate as it goes by and you catch yourself thinking, you know, I'm not really enjoying this. Rest assured, God isn't either. God loves a cheerful giver. But why? Like, why does, the, why does the intent of our giving matter to him as much as the content of our giving? Or to put it another way, why doesn't God love a reluctant giver? Why doesn't God love a, a disinterested giver? Isn't he just happy to have our resources? The answer is no. They're his They're not our resources. He doesn't need our resources. God doesn't love a moping giver because God is least glorified in us when we are least satisfied in him. If you are a Christian, God expects you to give lavishly and lovingly to the advance of the gospel. He cares about how we give, maybe even more than how much we give. I'm not sure how typical or widespread the practice is, but there are places that you can go in the world, even this morning, where the offering is the most exciting moment in the worship gathering. Do you know about this? In Ghana, West Africa, for example, when it comes time for the offering, the custom is to stand up, leave your seat, dance your offering down the aisle, and drop it in a basket at the front, and then dance your way back to your seat. That's how they do it in West Africa. What do you think here in Scandinavian, upper Midwest, Minnesota? Did we do that? (laughs) The laughter is telling and convicting. At this point, all we've done is just review Paul's teaching on giving. Lavish, loving. You may be tracking at this point. You may be thinking, okay, I do want to give more than I currently do. I really do. I want to take a step. And I... Based on the models of giving that we've seen, I'm I'm sensing my growth in that. I'm also sensing growth in motive for giving. 
I want to give out of duty, not out of delight. I want to give lavishly. I want to give lovingly. But you're asking the question, okay, just given the concrete realities with which I am dealing with this morning, how? How does this actually work? Because we can't be satisfied with mere theory this morning. We want these sermons to actually translate into activity. It's so much easier to live the Christian life all up in our heads. We just got it all figured out. There's no risk when it's all up in our heads. This reminds me of the story of a, of a pastor who went to visit one of his parishioners who was a farmer from the church that he pastored. And he asked the man as they stood on the land of his farm, he said, if you had $200, would you give $100 to the Lord? The farmer said, I, I would. He said, well, if you had, for example, two cows, would you give one cow to the Lord? The farmer replied, yeah, I, I would. The pastor finally asked, he said, and if you had two pigs, would you give one of the pigs to the Lord? And the farmer stopped him right there and he said, no, that's not fair, pastor. You know I have two pigs. <laughs> Application can be tough, can it? It's necessary, though. The third step toward grace-fueled giving is to act on the conviction that God's supply to you, it really will meet God's demand of you. So point number two today, as you step out in faith to give, I know this is simple, but you will get God's help. As you step out in faith to give, you will get God's help. That's how we can be brought to give lavishly and lovingly to the advance of the gospel. God's Gracious help. Paul says it three different times in three different ways in these four verses. You're going to get help. Starting in verse 8 to the first half of verse 11. And God is able to make all grace abound to you. So that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way. That is the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel according to the scriptures. Will God make us rich? Yes, as long as our intentions are to send it away from us. He will. To live on what you need and give the rest away. As you step out in faith to give, you will get God's help. Now we could drill down in any one of these verses. They all are saying the same thing in different ways. For example, God is able to make all grace abound to us, verse 8. He will multiply your seed for sowing, verse 10. You will be enriched in every way, verse 11. So let's just observe how it works, for example, in verse 8. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency at all times, you may abound in every good work. There's so much to see in this verse, but let's just limit ourselves to one crucial observation. If we could get one thing down, this would be spectacular this morning. Here's the observation. God's help and your work happen simultaneously. They happen at the exact same time. If you can grasp this, I assure you that you are holding one of the most powerful keys in the Christian life that there is to hold. 
beyond the fact that you're holding a great mystery in your hands. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that you may abound in every good work. Notice he didn't say let go and let God. We are far more active and invested than that. But it's not all us either. God is profoundly at work, equipping us to give, giving us the resources to be generous. Consider some of the other places in the New Testament where Paul uses this kind of language. We're going to apply it to giving lavishly and lovingly to the advance of the gospel. For example, Colossians 1.29 may be my favorite verse in the New Testament these days. Think about this with reference to giving. For this I toil, struggling with all of his energy that he powerfully works within me. Okay, whose toil, whose struggle? Paul's. Whose energy? God's. Or consider the classic statement in Philippians 2.12 to 13. Paul says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Work it out, for it is God who is working in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Whose work? Well, it's, it's our work to give, sustained by God's work, powered by God's work. Lastly, 1 Corinthians 15.10, Paul says, But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked. I worked harder than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God working in me. So whose work? Paul's work. Whose grace? God's grace. This is how it happens. We don't want to sugarcoat this. I mean, financial generosity, though a joy, is toil. It's struggle. It's plain hard work, a lot of the time. But as you step out in faith to give, God will meet you with resources to help you give. Your toil, your struggle, your hard work will be met with God's energy, God's power, God's work, and God's grace toward you. Here's how one pastor described this dynamic. Again, apply this to stepping out in faith to give. Charles Bridges asks this question. Shall we then wait until he works? Far from it. We must work, but in dependence on him. He works not without us, but with us, through us, in us, by us, and we work in him. Ours is the duty, his is the strength. Ours is the agency, his the quickening life. Check this sentence out. His commands do not imply our power to obey. His commands, like be generous, do not imply our power to obey, but our dependence upon him for the grace of obedience. The work, as it's ours, it's, it's a duty, but as a performance, it's God's. God gives what he requires. His promises are the foundation of our performances. Our works are not the cause, but the effect of his grace, and they could never come out of us unless God had first put them in us, says Mr. Bridges. I don't know about you, but I find this to be, these days, one of the most amazing realities of the Christian faith. The side-by-side, simultaneous reality of our obedience on the one hand and God's empowering of that obedience on the other. Listen to the way that John Owen puts it. Now, Charles Bridges, who I just read, was an avid reader of John Owen, so you're going to hear echoes here. Listen to this and apply it to generous giving in the local church. Owen says the following, We need to be commanded and to be assisted. 
We need to be commanded and to be assisted. The Holy Spirit so works in us that he works by us. What he does in us is done by us. Our duty is to apply ourselves unto his commands, and his work is to enable us to perform them. So we are called to give lavishly and lovingly to the advance of the gospel through the local church. Each of these realities, the resources and the attitude with which we give, is a gift of God's grace. It's ultimately a gift of God to begin with. And as you step out in faith to give, you will get God's help. I mean, if this reality gets a hold of you, you will likely begin to pray as King David did when offerings were made for the temple. In 1 Chronicles 29 14, David said to God, But who am I and who is my people that we should be able to thus offer willingly? For all things come from you, and from your own we have given you. If you are wondering how you might still take a step of faith in giving, that's a little bit more concrete this morning, don't take it as a command, but simply as a suggestion, a place to start. If you haven't put the training wheels on of your giving, put the training wheels on. Try it out. See what happens when you give a tenth of your resources to the local church. Just take some toddler steps. See how it goes. For those of you who have been giving at that, that level now, here's a challenge for you. Take off the training wheels. Move beyond the tithe. There's nothing heroic about 10%. That's probably the one thing that I want to get across. It's not a command. It's not heroic either. It all belongs to the Lord. And consider the unblushing promises that God makes to us in verses 8 to 11 that he will help us. God's supply to us meets his demand of us. As you step out in faith to give, you'll get God's help. Final point today. As you step out in faith to give, God will get his glory. As you step out in faith to give, God will get his glory. Now granted that this might be the wrong time of season for a Christmas sermon illustration, but indulge me for a minute. One of my favorite holiday moments came in what had to have been the Christmas of 1984. I received a gift from my 85-year-old grandmother that changed my life. A copy of Michael Jackson's Thriller album. I loved my grandmommy. That's what we called her, grandmommy. But Madge Abernethy knew next to nothing about Michael Jackson. She couldn't have known. But my dad did. Now, as our grandparents age, they have one of two choices if they want to give meaningful gifts to their grandchildren. One is that they can just send cash. The other is that they can send a check made out to mom or dad. And they, who are far more plugged in into what we like and what we don't, can make the selection for us. And it can come with grandma and grandpa's name on the tag. So while I was over the moon about getting Thriller that year, with all due respect to my grandmother, I knew precisely where to assign the credit. I knew who picked it out. My dad got the glory for that gift, even though the tag said, love, grandmommy. I knew better. The exact same dynamic is at work here in the tail end of our text. Look with me at verses 11 to 15 to see who it is 
that gets the credit for the generosity of the Corinthian church. You will be enriched in every way, to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others, while they long to see you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. And this probably doesn't take much explaining, but let's dwell on it for a minute or two anyway. When you and I, sinners though we are, become the sorts of people who are giving both lavishly and lovingly to the advance of the gospel, it doesn't take long to connect the dots and draw the conclusion about where the help is coming from and therefore where the glory should be assigned. That we are getting help. We're getting divine assistance to give generously. And the one who gives the help gets the glory, not the one who gives the offering. Let's admit it. We don't need the glory for giving generously. We really don't. We don't deserve it anyway. We just need the help. But if we can get the help to give generously, God gets his glory as he deserves. Verse 11, Paul says that this sort of generosity produces thanksgiving to God. Verse 12, he says this sort of generosity overflows in many thanksgivings to God. In verse 13, they will glorify God. Verse 15, thanks be to God. How could we miss it? Giving lavishly and lovingly to the advance of the gospel through the local church isn't ultimately at the end of the day just about finding ourselves in the black in January, although that would be nice. It's not ultimately about meeting ministry needs inside and outside of this church, although that would be great. Ultimately, generous giving is about finding ourselves face down in worship and reverence before a holy God who gave all of the resources and the grace to begin with. That is what it is all about. Don't you love this final verse, verse 15? Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. I once heard D. James Kennedy give an unforgettable sermon on that verse. The Holy Spirit was just pulsing through it as I stood in my kitchen about a decade ago listening to that. Here's something perhaps maybe you didn't know about this verse. The word Paul uses for inexpressible here in verse 15 didn't exist in his language before he wrote it down. There's absolutely no trace of this word in the Greek language before this letter, 2 Corinthians. So what this means is this. All of this is welling up in Paul's soul. He's thinking about the Jerusalem collection. He's thinking about the the generous giving in the churches of Macedonia. He's considering with faith how the Corinthians are going to respond. And he's welling up with gratitude. He's pondering the magnificence of God's grace as he closes out this chapter. And he was searching for words and for vocabulary to describe God's gift to us. And his vocabulary simply failed him. He didn't have a word, so he coined one. We translate it inexpressible. Isn't that appropriate? Well, what's the gift he's referring to? 
That's the final question. What's the inexpressible gift? Is it the Jerusalem collection? This is pretty impressive. A decade-long offering that he took that gave to the mother church in Jerusalem to help this poor congregation out. Well, it's a great gift for sure, but it's probably not the gift he's thinking about here. It could be the gift of the boomerang blessing that's going to come back to the church in Corinth that he mentions in verse 14. He says, they long for you and pray for you. I think this is the church in Jerusalem. Because of the surpassing grace of God upon you, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Well, maybe. I mean, the church in Corinth is going to get blessed. The giver gets blessing here. But it's not likely the inexpressible gift for which he's thanking God. I mean, is there any question, really, what the inexpressible gift here is in verse 15? It's Christ. It's Jesus. The unspeakable, indescribable, inexpressible gift is the gospel. Grace-fueled giving is gospel-fueled giving. When Jesus Christ invades our lives and enters in, he takes all of it over, and we are motivated by his grace to be generous with our resources. 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 are not calling us to dig deep and to give out of our resources or to find it in our hearts to be generous with what we have. That's not how the Bible motivates, ever. God's word here is not calling us to dig deep, but rather to see that in Christ God has already dug deep and forgiven us a truckload of sin. Our sins deserve divine judgment, and it's coming. The judgment isn't simply a a past reality that fell upon Jesus at the cross. The judgment in the New Testament is mainly something that is to come. And if we are going to avoid the judgment of God, we have only one place to look. Our sins deserve divine judgment, but God in his grace has sent his son to live in our place, to absorb the judgment of God in his person, to die on the cross for our sins and was raised to life on the third day And he stands ready to rescue all, all who will turn from their sins and seek shelter in him. Paul's thinking about that and he says, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. When you're freshly rescued, you start to wonder, what are all of the ways that I might highlight the grace of Jesus Christ in my life? And one of them, one of them is what we do with our resources. So the third step toward grace-fueled giving is to act on the conviction that God's supply to you will meet his demand of you. If you're a Christian, God expects you. He expects you to give lavishly and lovingly to the advance of the gospel. As you step out in faith, you will get God's help. God will get his glory. One of my favorite quotes as I was studying these past few weeks came from John Wesley. I I shared, I think several weeks ago, Uh, that John Wesley, although he handled a lot of money in his lifetime, died essentially penniless, just had a few, uh, some loose change in his pockets and in his drawers when he died. He was an extraordinary steward of God's resources. Wesley said this. Wesley said, here's what we should do. Make as much money as you can. Secondly, save as much money as you can. Third, give as much money as you can. Give to the advance of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, I am 
thankful that your word goes places that we need it to go. I thank you for the gift of 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. My trust, Lord, in your ability through the power of your Holy Spirit to bring these realities home to each of our souls is unbounded. Lord, I've seen what you can do with the power of your word. So, Lord, without twisting arms, without hanging thermometers on the wall, without guilting each other, no drive-by guiltings in this church about giving. Lord, help us to be grace-fueled as we give. Help us, Lord, to ponder the examples of those who model such giving. Help us to be persuaded by the right motives, out of delight, not out of duty. And may we see that all of it, all of the power, all of the strength, all of the resources are furnished by you. And when you give us the help, you do get the glory. In Jesus' great name, we pray this and we ask this. Amen.